West LA, 9-11, and leaving the best job you'll ever have. Today on The Pursuit, Drew Hyun. Welcome to The Pursuit. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and this is episode six with my guest today, Drew Hyun. Drew is the founder and pastor of Hope Church Midtown, which is part of the Hope Church Network in New York City, a family of diverse churches in and around New York, which he also founded. And Drew has also co-founded the New City Network, which is a network of urban churches that value multi-ethnicity, spirit-filled ministry, emotional health, and mission. Prior to planting Hope Church, Drew served on staff at New Life Fellowship Church in Queens, which you may not have heard of, but you probably have heard of Pete Scazzaro, who was the founder of that church and author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. We sat down and talked about how an LA boy came to plant a network of churches in New York City. I do. I do have a twin brother, uh, or I, I am rather. Yeah. 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 My twin brother, he's a lawyer down in Washington, D.C. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Are your parents more proud of him because he's a lawyer? <laughs> and just because he's a better human being than me. Yeah. <laughs> All around. He's just a great, really tremendous guy. So who was born first? He was born first, three minutes earlier. Right. So in Korean culture, like you have to respect your elders, even if they're twins. Did you have to like call him Kyung and older brother and stuff? I didn't have to, but of course he reminded me of that. And he'd always wonder why I w- wouldn't call him that. <laughs> that was a topic of much discussion and arguments and that sort of thing. What was it like? Did, did you enjoy, did you have a good childhood growing up as a twin? Yeah. I mean, we, so in three and a half years, my mom and dad had four boys. Whoa. So my brother, my twin brother, and I were the last of the four boys. So my oldest brother was is three and a half years older than me. Yeah, we all, all, all four of us are really, really close. Um, I have great love and affection for my brothers and my parents. And um, yeah, and so uh, two of my brothers and their families live in Los Angeles right now. And that's where you grew up. You grew out West. Right? Yep, grew up in Los Angeles. Was born and raised there in West LA. Like in, right in LA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our, our address is actually Los Angeles, California. Did you like growing up out there? Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I, I don't know what it was like to grow up anywhere else, <laughs> but we, we loved it. We loved the neighborhood that we lived in. I mean, we were the only Korean kids in our neighborhood though. And, um, wait in LA, in LA. Yep. So we didn't grow up around many Koreans at all. I thought LA was made up of Koreans. I know, I know, except our neighborhood. So um, even our high school, I mean, our high school had very, very few, um, I mean, I could count with my fingers how many Koreans there were in school and Asian Americans in general at our school were also very low percentage wise. We grew up with a lot of Mexican American, African American, and some white folks as well. So we, yeah, so it was an incredibly diverse neighborhood. Our school was always incredibly diverse. Didn't grow up with many Koreans, though. Um, only on weekends when we'd go to church where our parents wanted to go to church. So we actually grew up going to a large Korean church in Los Angeles called Oriental Mission Church, OMC. Oh, yeah. Where everyone's got kind of like two to three degree separation, even if you're not a Christian. <laughs> Every Korean has some sort of right. connection to OMC. So we were there 
we grew up going to that church um, early on, but that was in K-Town and we were all the way out in West LA. Was it weird for you growing up having sort of like a weekday racial experience and a weekend racial experience? Yeah. I mean, I come to like, I mean, it was just a normal part of life, but certainly something that we reflected on now later looking back and thinking like, wow, this is why some settings are more comfortable for me. So for instance, even for my wife, I would often tell her that I actually feel most comfortable. I know this might sound kind of weird, but I, I probably feel most comfortable in like an all African-American or an all Mexican-American or Hispanic context than all Asian or all white. Because that was your neighborhood. Yeah, that was my neighborhood. And so I feel way more comfortable. So if, if I were to, even if I were to go to, into a church environment, like I'd feel way more comfortable going to an all African-American church than I would going to like a church that's all white people. Um, <laughs> so, wow, yeah, which is the opposite for Tina. She grew up in Houston, Texas, and she didn't have, she grew up in, it was kind of like all white neighborhoods, all white school, all white. Yeah. yeah well, her church experience was also mostly Korean American, but. When was the last time you've been in a Korean church? Well, um, I'd say, I mean, what's, what's ironic about it is probably our, the church that I'm leading now, Hope Midtown, out of our family of churches, it's probably, I want to say it's 50% Korean American. <laughs> Are you like, are you like, get out of here? You make me uncomfortable. <laughs> Part of that has been my, my journey has actually been beginning to love and embrace my ethnic identity even more so now than ever before. Huh. So part of, so a big part of my journey, right, was like if I grew up going to churching in, in Los Angeles, was at like this huge, mega, mega Korean immigrant church. And, uh, and then they had this massive church split, like really ugly church. Mm. How old were you? Oh, gosh. How old was I? I was probably like in sixth grade or something. Okay. And so, so the church then, I mean, we didn't know any better. I mean, our parents didn't tell us. We just showed up, go, started going to a different church with some of our friends that were at this, at this right, right. newer church that was, that had just started. And so we started going to this new church in a new location, which was also a mega church because like thousands, you know. The church, the original church was so big. And so the second church was also very, very big because it was a massive church split. And so we were going to this other church, this other Korean church and um, our home environment, like uh, my father was a very driven kind of violent man. Mm. And so we, we, we never thought of ourselves as growing up in like a Christian household mm. because there were so many kind of temperamental mood swings of my father. Yeah. My mom was very devout, very sacrificial. And, uh, but my dad was like very violent. And so we, um, we actually grew up enjoying going to church and enjoying like the friends there and kind of, it was this different part of the city and this different part of life. And it was actually through that and learning scripture, we would go to this youth club called Awana or kids club called Awana. Yeah. We'd mem memorize scripture, have different mentors and that sort of thing. And uh, it was through that, that we, you know, I think all of us really felt this sense of the reality of God and who he was, well, especially in the midst of a very um, toxic home environment. And so we loved church and, uh, but then our church split and then we went to this other church and we loved that church. And, um, and then that church also had a really bad, nasty split. <laughs> Hashtag Korean church split. I know, I know, man. So like three, like three or four years later, after our junior high years, that church split again. Wow. And so a lot of our friends that we grew up with during that time, we were, we were really close to, cause again, uh, I think the kids and youth environments, I think we all loved the church and it was kind of the safe haven for us. Uh, but a lot of my friends, I don't know if they still go to church or I, I don't know how, mm, yeah. how faithful or devout they are. I think because we saw so much ugliness 
and the church politics. And I mean, at that second split, uh, I remember like cops being called in to break up fistfights between my goodness, you know, one faction and the other. And during that time, also that second church, my father, he had, he had gone away and we, you know, we, we didn't see much of him, which we were really grateful for because honestly it was always so painful whenever he was at home. And so, um, but during that season when we were at that second church, he actually came home one day and he's like, Hey, you know, I'm a pastor now and come with me. And we, we went and he was graduating from seminary. So it turns out like he was working so hard by going to seminary as well. So he's got this seminary degree. He gets hired as a pastor at that church. Um, as one of the pastors, really that church. Yes. Yeah. So my father's now working as a pastor, but our home, what was he, what was he doing for work before that? He was a, he was, he did engineering like electrical engineering and, or refrigeration and air conditioning and that sort of thing. And so he felt called to the ministry at some point and went to seminary yeah. and got trained. Yeah. And- yeah. So he did that bivocationally until he went full time. My wife, my mom was still working full time. She was a nurse this entire time okay. and she would work the graveyard shift so that she could take care of us. Wow. And then my dad, my dad would basically be, you know, working and then going to school and then finish his seminary degree and then got a job as a full-time pastor at this church while we're in middle school or junior high school that we loved this church. And, um, and then that church split again. And then my father ended up starting a church. Wow. So most, most people are actually really shocked. Um, when I tell them my story, they're like, oh, well, you just grew up as a Christian and therefore you must, you know, that's why you're still a Christian. That's why you believe. There were a lot of reasons for you not to believe. Yeah, exactly. And it's because we saw such acrimony within the church. And so we're living kind of in this weird place of like, dad, you're a pastor, but yet you, you're extremely violent and your anger and you're, you're a raging person. Mm. Um, so there's always this disconnect for us in terms of, but yet my father's like, he's a brilliant man. And so he ended up going on to plant a church. And um, this was now when we're in high school, he plants a church and we're having a hard time with it. And then my dad ended up... Um, after a couple of years, the church was just really hard and plotting. And mm-hmm. there were like three or four other families. And then a couple of years later, there's still those three or four families. He decided to shut it down. Meanwhile, the four of us boys, we all, we all kind of stuck together. And we all, I think we're pretty still tenacious in our faith. But so we ended up finding this small little church plant that in Los Angeles that we ended up loving. It was like a, a church of like 20 to 30 people um, that was led by this recent college grad who was a, a seminary student at Biola. His name's James Yim. Um, still someone that I would consider a dear friend and mentor. And was it a Korean church or? Yeah, it was predominantly a Korean American church. Um, again, there's 20 to 30 of us. So it was, it was a smaller community, but high school, that was a really formative community for us. And then my father, after he ends up like closing the church, he ended up writing a book and, um, the book ends up becoming a bestseller in Korea. Overnight, my father becomes like this, this Korean Christian celebrity. What was the book? It was like a... And his book is basically, it's about how to raise your family. <laughs> and so... I don't mean to laugh, Drew. I know, man. Yeah. But that is fascinating. Yeah. And so my dad, I mean, to this day, he's actually a super well-respected, conservative Korean Christian voice on family, how to raise a family and all that stuff. And so, but meanwhile... All of us, all of our childhoods were wrought with so much pain and so much hurt and so much like feelings of hypocrisy and, and stuff that we've all kind of had to work through together. Yeah. So anyhow, so my dad ends up leaving, obviously, church world and be, ends up becoming like this itinerant pastor who would go on to preach and teach. And since then, he's written like 27 books or something. And he's like, 
He's spoken at all the massive churches in Korea and beyond, wherever there are Korean people around the world. Does he still talk about like family and stuff? Yeah, of course. That's his thing. Yeah, that's his thing, you know? So how do you feel as, I mean, you use the word violent, extremely violent, raging. Yeah. How do you feel as a son of an extremely violent person <laughs> who's famous for raising Christian families? Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, we, <laughs> I mean, I went to years of counseling for that, you know, yeah. I think that's been my own journey of wrestling through so much of that. Um, the father wound is certainly a huge one for me, mm. um, in many different ways. And it's informed in many ways. It's kind of created who I am today, as well as the ways in which I, the, kind of the lens by which I've, I view my faith and even the lens by which I view myself. And it's, it's certainly what has made me and what has changed me and something that I've had to um, really wrestle through and break free from and all that. So, so that's where it kind of, so my story, when I ended up going off to college then, so that, that church experience was super formative for me. And then we ended up going off to college, both, uh, uh, my twin brother and I, we, we both went to Berkeley and my brother, my older brother, Philip was also there. So you guys are a bunch of nerds. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know about a bunch of nerds, but I mean, Berkeley. Well, yeah. I mean, we loved it. We loved visiting Phil when he was there. And so we go up to, to Berkeley and I remember that first semester wrestling through faith stuff, but mm -hmm. being also pretty on fire for it as well. I remember taking a class on Bible as literature and taking a class on religious studies and just kind of searching and sifting through different faith and worldviews and um, really came to this strong conviction. I really believe this stuff. Yeah. And I really believe not the stuff of the other religion, but really believe that Jesus is Lord. And um, I just remember being a zealot after that. I was absolutely on fire. I was had so much zeal and passion for God and wanting people to know him. And it was during that time felt an even firmer call into ministry, vocational ministry. And so we were kind of part of different student groups and helping in leadership of these different student groups. We were involved in crew. We helped start a church. We helped start a college. Now you keep saying we, is this you and your brother? Yeah, me and my brother. So we were, okay. yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, I really. Yeah, no, that's fine. He's part of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and he's, like I said, he's a better human being than I am. And uh, in many ways, <laughs> a much like just an incredible Christ follower as well. And so we were, um, so we were involved in all of these different initiatives and quickly grew in leadership. And then we were part of this church that we helped start and we helped start the college ministry out of that church. And that church that we were part of was largely a Korean American church. And then we were also involved with crew at Cal. And then I was also involved with something called Unity in Christ, which was an organization that helped um, kind of network between the different campus groups. Okay. And so um, ended up being kind of a leader in that ministry as well by the time I was a senior. So even back in college, you had this heart and passion to, to bring people together. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back, it was, there was this like networking slash working together, breaking down barriers kind of mindset and heart. When you were at Berkeley, did you know that you wanted to go into ministry to become a pastor? Uh so very early on, after that moment where I was kind of wrestling through faith stuff, and then I, I started to get much more fervent about, yeah, I'm called to vocational ministry. Mm -hmm. Now, this was something that I, mean, I remember years ago, I had felt called to it as well. Like when somebody at some retreat had asked, does that someone want to become, you know, 
anyone feel a call to go into ministry? And I remember raising my hand as like, I don't know, a middle schooler or whatever. And that had always kind of stuck with me and stayed with me. And then I went through kind of that foray of wrestling through faith. And then shortly thereafter, when I was in college, once I, once I, I remember reading, yeah, in the gospel of John and, you know, there's that passage where Peter says, to whom else shall we go, Lord? Mm. You alone have the words of eternal life. And I remember that was, that passage that spoke so strongly to me. Like I was searching for truth and meaning in all these different religions and faiths. And I just remember thinking, man, but Jesus, I believe you have the words of eternal life. So at that point I was all in, and that was very early on in my college career. And then at that point I was like, yeah, full on. I was definitely had my sights set on like a life of vocational ministry. I majored in rhetoric and minored in classics. And so, <laughs> you know, classics so I could learn kind of the New Testament era and rhetoric just so that I could read broadly, philosophically, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, all with the eye towards ministry. My twin brother also majored in rhetoric. He would go on to, to law school. And as I grew in my zeal and fervor, um, I remember I wanted to actually go to the Middle East and become a martyr there. <laughs> <laughs> So your your goal was to be a martyr. Like Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to go and die for the gospel. What inspired you to Well, every, there was there was this there was this talk by John Piper that was floating around during that time. Doing missions when dying is gain. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard that, huh. but it was like this talk he gave at Wheaton that was like this legendary talk and it was all about dying you know, for, for mission and stuff. And I remember listening to that and being like, yes, that's, that's it. That's who I want to be. Wow. And I remember, you know, reading Jim Elliott, yeah. you know, right around the time, Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott and all that stuff was, was what had captivated so many of us in terms of mission, especially with this evangelistic bent. And I, evangelism is one of my, you know, deepest passions and callings. And so I was like, I want to be a martyr. Uh, where where in the world right now can I preach the gospel and where it's maybe the most dangerous place? And I thought the Middle East. And so I had all this zeal. My junior year, I went on a couple of different like mission trips. One was to East Asia, and then one was actually to uh, to New York City. Okay. And so the su- summer between my junior and senior year, I came to New York City. Both of the mission trips were with crew, and I fell in love with. I just fell in love with New York. And was this was the summer of 2000. What did you love about it? I just loved, I mean, the, the mission back then, urban ministry and mission trips to here was mostly about urban ministry. The way that people thought about urban ministry, it was about working in the hood. Mm. It was serving the poor. Um, yeah. It wasn't about working kind of the cultural elite, you know, upwardly mobile folks. Right. Hipsters didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. That was not what urban ministry was all about. If you're going to move to the city, you're moving here to work with the poor. And so that's what I did. So I moved. Well, so I came and I loved it that summer. I loved the diversity. Felt like the world was here. There's something about the energy of the city that just kind of captivated me. And so I ended up going back to college and there were three opportunities. The church that we had helped start, that we had helped start the college ministry as well. That church had grown quite a bit. And so now the senior pastor asked if I would be willing to become the college pastor and they would pay for seminary and all this stuff. And so that was one option. The second option was I got this scholarship to go to Israel. Um, Just this, first of all, people were so shocked that I'd even apply this Korean American kid who wanted to go to Israel, to Jerusalem for a year of development. And that's before going to Israel was like a thing people did. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I, I got this scholarship to go to Israel. And then I also the the guy who was the executive director of Here's Life Inner City, which was the organization that hosted the mission trip that I was part of in New York. In New York. The the head executive director's name is Mark Taft. He was like, Hey, Drew, he just contacted me. He's like, Hey man, 
I know you have this heart for the city and I know you have a heart for pastoral ministry. I think you should really pursue this internship at this church in Queens, the, the one that I go to. And I was like, oh, well, we, we, you know, that summer we lived in Queens. Why didn't I ever go to this church or visit this church? And he's like, oh, well, you know, we had other ministry partners that we had set up for you guys, but this church in Queens is something that you would love. And so I was like, huh. So I had these three different options and spring break um, of our senior year, we're, you know, we're getting ready to graduate. And my brother, Peter, meanwhile, he was going to visit law schools in New York. And so I was like, okay, well, I might as well just go visit and see this, check, check out this church and stuff. And so it was spring break of 2001 that Peter came out here. My brother came out here, check out law schools in New York that he was considering. Uh-huh. And then I, I ended up um, meeting with Pete Scazzaro for the first time and meeting with Jim Owens, who was on staff with Pete and was kind of my direct supervisor and visiting New Life. And I remember visiting New Life Fellowship and absolutely loving it. It was, it was in, in like, if someone can think of an ideal kind of church setting, like New Life was at for me when I first walked in. Now you had this, at this point never gone to a non-Korean church context. Yes. So I'd been part of like non-Korean fellowship groups. Right. And I had been part of very diverse kind of bringing people to the table. But yeah, in terms of a local church where that was my home church, mm-hmm. I, had, I had never been in like uh, such a richly diverse church. And so when I came to New Life, it was the ideal of everything that, I imagined what heaven would be like and Mm. what a church should be in terms of its robust diversity. And so I visited that one spring break and I absolutely loved it. And uh, yeah, and then I remember talking to Pete and um, talking to Jim and asking them, well, you know, how much do you guys pay? And they they were like, oh, we don't pay anything. Like, yeah. Oh, it's an internship. <laughs> yeah. It's an internship. Like you'd have to raise support. And I was like, I, I, you know, aside from a couple of mission trips, I was like, I've never raised support before. But that wasn't a deal breaker for you. Well, so, I mean, only looking back, I mean, there's a whole lot to this story, um, about why I said no to this church that we had helped start. And there's, and then the, the scholarship, uh, the foundation was so kind. We asked them like, Hey, I, I don't think I'm going to go for a year, but can I go for a summer? And they were like, yes go for a summer. So I said, with the remaining funds, can I also take my brother? And they were like, yes, go for it. Wait, what, what foundation? It's this, it's a Jewish foundation out in uh, California. Oh, to go to Israel. Yeah. To go to Israel. Okay. And so, so instead of one, one Hyun brother, yeah. they get two for half the time. Yeah. Two. And we both go to Israel that summer after we graduated. Oh, <laughs> that's fun. So I end up because I feel like God is leading me saying no to the other, yeah. Saying no to the church opportunity and moving to New York. And so my first, so I start raising support and I raised about $7,500. Per month? For, for the year. For, okay, that's not enough. I know. Well, <laughs> it, it was enough. I ended up moving out here. My brother moves first because he goes to law school and he starts. I moved here on September 5th, 2001. Oh my gosh. Yes, yeah, so I moved to New York. And then, uh, you know, six days later, it's 9-11. Wow. Where were you the morning of? Yeah, I was... I remember I got up early and I was in Forest Hills and I was walking up to get to the subway so I could take the R train to New Life. And uh, as I'm walking up, I remember looking into on um, on Austin Street, there's a Radio Shack right there. And we're looking in the window of Radio Shack and there was this crowd of people around the- uh, The TVs in the window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, so I walk into the Radio Shack and I look and I, my jaw just dropped. Everyone's just incredulous. And yeah. I mean, I remember just asking people, is this real? Is that real? And everyone's like, yeah, it's real. And you're six days into New York City. Six days in. And so I don't know what to do 
And so, well, when I see it, I just immediately, I try calling my brother because at that time he was at law school at NYU. Oh, wow. And so it just started his first year. And so I start, I try calling him, you know, the phones are dead. Nothing can get through. I mean, right. All circuits are busy. I just, I ran home. I woke up all the roommates. So we started watching on TV, you know, we're watching the news and one of the guys is like the operations guy at New Life. And so I remember there was like this emergency meeting after 9-11. And I, I was actually, I'm this young 21 year old kid, just moved to New York. And because I'm like in the room as the staff and Pete is leading them through a discernment about how to respond to, to this situation. So you're getting like an education that you could never pay for, right? You're just seeing behind the curtain. Yeah, it was unbelievable. And it was just, I mean, it was an unbelievable time in the city. I just remember the the pain and the anguish, the silence, the, yeah, it was, it was an unbelievable time. And, you know, there were folks and new life with its rich diversity, you know, they had people who were firefighters and in law enforcement. Yeah. It was an incredibly humbling time. Like people are suffering and as a result of the suffering, there's, you know, and new life was a very lower income, blue collar immigrant. You know, there's people that are addicts and, uh, and I'm in these Bible studies, I'm rubbing shoulders now with people who are like so different than what I knew, you know, 75 nationalities, many from broken pasts, you know, mm. like one of the, you know, some of the pastors from the Spanish con- you know, congregation were part of like the Colombian drug cartel, you know, and like, wow. so like, so there's just this, there's just, I'm rubbing shoulders with people that I, I, I just remember all of my previous presuppositions about God and faith and my know-it-all attitude, even after 9-11, you know, I, I knew I had read all the books on apologetics about evil and suffering, but here I was now face to face with people who were really suffering and going through difficulty. And in many ways, my faith was being deconstructed during that time. The, the deconstruction, do you think that deconstruction was a result of the diversity that you experienced that you had at that church? I think it's the deconstruction that every believer goes through Mm -hmm. at some point in their journey. For many, it's that disillusioning moment after the college bubble. Uh For me, it was, you know, I was in this college bubble where, yeah, faith was about right doctrine and knowing all this stuff, you know, and, and then I came and like life just punched me in the face. Yeah. Six days after you moved to New York. Yeah. All this stuff was happening at one time where it was like, wow, like life is really not so cookie cutter. And there are some mysterious things about life and there are some painful things about life. And so it was a mixture of the context of new life with their lens of spirituality and emotional health. And then there was just the normal like disillusionment that anyone goes through when suffering, the the only kind of lessons that one can learn through difficulty and suffering. So I think that was the second thing. And I think the third thing was just the narrative of our city and the, and the context, the people that I was rubbing shoulders with. And so it was, and so that context, I think it was those three things. And so then eventually you, you come on staff there and you go to finish up seminary, you go to seminary. Yeah. So I, I do an internship that first year, basically scrubbing toilets and so literally scrubbing. Yeah. 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 And, uh, I'm, you know, I'd have all these different tasks, but there's a lot of favor after that first year. So I ended up going to Gordon-Conwell, um, but Pete and the elders, they offered me a part-time position to travel back to New York on the weekends to work part-time at New Life as first an outreach coordinator. And so, so that's what I did. I remember that's when we met and you were like, oh yeah, I go back on the weekends. I go back on the weekends and I work uh, for my home church. 
And because I, you know, grew up in the Korean church, I also, you know, knew tons of people that would go to seminary and then work for their church. And so I just assumed you were going to a Korean church, working a youth group or something like that. Right, right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So many Koreans know that story, right? Like that narrative. And um, so, yeah, I ended up going to seminary, would travel back and forth. It was a crazy time of, yeah, just blitzing through seminary. I was working like crazy. I was a workaholic. Ended up, yeah, getting a job as a janitor um, at Gordon-Conwell while still traveling back and forth on the weekends. And then three years later, New Life extended me a job offer to be full-time at New Life at that point. And how many years were you on staff? Um, so after that, I ended up being on staff for uh, six more years. Wow. And those are real formative times for that church and for Pete. Yeah, yeah. So obviously the first wave of Emotionally Healthy Church being published in 2003. Yeah. And then Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Uh, well, so... Pete goes away on another sabbatical. Okay. He goes away on another sabbatical, 2004. And he basically leaves me to not, not lead the church because I wasn't leading the church, but lead from the, the pulpit and from the stage. Really? Yeah. And it was, it was an awful, awful time. <laughs> it was like, I, like looking back, I cannot believe Pete entrusted me with that. It gave me, it gave me such an appreciation for, for pastoral ministry and how hard it really is because there was a spiritual weightiness that I felt that summer mm. that I had never felt before. I think as a young person, I think I had all these grandiose thoughts about my own capacity and leadership and, uh, but it was a deeply humbling summer for me. And uh, but yeah, Pete came back and then I had elevated within, so starting as an intern in 2001, by the time I left in 2011, I was the senior associate pastor there, okay. kind of leading the staff and uh, or most of the staff and um, on the executive team and working closely with Pete. When you were transitioning out, how, what was the journey from, from New Life Fellowship to uh, where you are now? Oh man, it was, that was also an awful transition. <laughs> Well, part of, well, when I say an awful transition, 2010, I had gone through some depression. Mm. I was probably depressed without even knowing it or putting words to it. And so in 2010, it was a really hard year for me. And honestly, I was, and no one's fault, but my own of just overwork and kind of running too hard and um, yeah, and our staff undergoing all this transition. And I was wrestling through a lot of things and Pete internally was, we, we were talking about succession. And I was part of those plans along with Rich Velotis, who's now the lead pastor there. And he and I were, um, we were talking about leading the church together because our gifts are so complimentary. And mm -hmm. so as I'm going through that though, I, I'm also like, I'm depressed and it's showing like I, um, the joy and energy that I would hopefully often bring to work was now replaced sometimes by just this weird moodiness. Were you just burnt out? I, I think it was a combination of a lot of things. I was burnt out. I was depressed. It, it was kind of the classic, you know, the, the shadow side of a two um, in the Enneagram, like okay. the helper who helps too much and then gets resentful. And, right. and so that's kind of where I was at New Life. And I think for most of the people in the church, they still knew me as whatever Drew, but I, I think for most of this, the senior leaders on staff there, they probably said, oh yeah, Drew seems a bit on edge, you know? And, um, and then I would be meeting with counselors and spiritual directors, just seeking God and wondering what God had for me and for us. And I remember there was this key moment where as I was discerning with a spiritual director about like what, what was happening in my own soul, I realized there were two things that were keeping me at New Life. One, 
was every time I thought about leaving, I thought, where am I going to find another job? <laughs> <laughs> like besides being a janitor, I've never worked at another church before. <laughs> and I've, I, I, I have no idea where I'd get another job. And where would I get a job as good as this? Yeah. And, uh, you know, at that time. Did you really think you couldn't get another job? I I thought I couldn't get another job in New York as good as what I had it as a minister in that church. Does that make sense? Like, there's a part of me that's looking around like, oh, could I work at that church or this church or whatever? And I'm like, no, no, no. There's there's nothing that's better than what I have right now, you know? Right, right. And I realized, though, that there were two things that were keeping me. One was financial security because I just felt like, oh, man. How am I going to support us? How am I going to support our family? Yeah, as I'm as I'm wrestling through what's keeping me there, it was really money and it was prestige. Wow! Because every every time I thought about leaving, I thought, man, the only things like where where would I get this opportunity? Where a senior leader of a church that's now grown with mm. like national stature would wel- welcome me? Yeah, someone like me, this Korean American kid, as like a senior leader, like that. That was like. That was like a dream of mine. And, yeah. and so when I realized that those were the two reasons, though, I realized it was time to leave. And so I remember it came to a head in January. Uh, so January 2011 comes around now. And um, this guy named Dave Travis, who works with the Leadership Network, he comes and he meets with us. He meets with myself, Rich, and he meets with Pete and Jerry, it's all separately. And uh, as I'm sharing with him some of the things that I'm wrestling with, and I've been here for 10 years, and, da, 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 and at the end of my conversation with him, he says to me, Drew, I think you're gone, man. <laughs> it was the first time someone actually said that to me, like like that straight up. Why did he say that? I think I was just, as everything that I was sharing, he was just like, I think you're gone. And I was like, no, I think I'm 50-50. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, you're like 90-10. And, uh, and then I went home and I told Tina and she's like, yeah, I think so. Wow. And then he gathered, Dave Travis gets together with Pete, myself and the elders. And he, he says to the elders, he's like, well, I think Drew is gone. I think he needs to leave. And uh, I think Rich is capable and should become the primary candidate. And at that point, Rich had been on staff for two years. And uh, Were you hurt by that? No, not at all. I was like, yeah, this makes sense. Like he, he says to me, I think Drew should go and he should plant a church. And Pete and the elders are just, they're speechless. They don't know what to say because... They, they, this was just not on the radar. They never envisioned New Life Fellowship without you. Yeah, we were supposed to, I had been there for 10 years at that point. We were supposed to make this announcement in the spring. And like, wow. they're just like, and they knew that I had hardy, had a hard year prior to that, but like, they were just like kind of dumbfounded. And Dave Travis, I just remember like we're in this room and Dave's like, yeah, I think this is what should happen. And then I remember Pete says, well, can Drew at least stay through September? There's been so much transition. And Dave Travis goes, no, Drew needs to leave quickly and not look back. Wow. <laughs> and, and everyone's just silent. And then he goes, and then Dave says, I think Drew should plant a church. He said the prime age to plant a church is 28 to 35. And how old are you at this point? Yeah. And then he says to me, he goes, Drew, how, how old are you? I'm 31. And then Dave says to Pete, Pete, how old were you when you planted New Life? And uh, Pete goes, 31. Everyone was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> It all just felt so heavy and crazy. Yeah. And um and so we submitted Tina and I we prayed about it some more. We submitted our resignation. Like people think that we wanted to plant a church right away. So we did not there was not in our I, I thought eventually maybe I would start a church, but in some ways I had too much ego for starting a church. What does that mean? Which is ironic, yeah, because most people think you need tons of ego to start a church. <laughs> I, I had even more because I had so much ego that I would say, like, why would I start a church when I was 
and be a nobody when I could be a somebody here at this big church, you know? Uh, and so I, I realized that God needed to break, break that out of me. And so I submit my final resignation in February of 2011. We make the announcement in March and have a bunch of town halls. Um, New Life had blessed us with like a sabbatical. So they were like, hey, why don't you go on a sabbatical? Or why don't you take some time just to figure out what's next for you? And so Tina and I, we ended up looking, we sublet our apartment that summer. And, um, and then we ended up going to Asia, just traveling around Asia. And during that time, it was brutal for me. It was like, it was really hard. It was my first foray into unemployment. And I used to think that unemployment was so much about money and about material security. And I didn't realize how deeply unemployment was a blow to my own sense of self-worth and identity. Yeah, I just remember the pain of like when people would ask me, what do I do? And <sighs> being so ashamed and saying I'm a pastor and they're like, well, like where? And I'm like, oh, why? leave me alone. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> it taught me so much. Like looking back, that desert season was maybe the best thing to happen to me because it broke me. How long were you in that desert season? I mean, I had been, I felt like I had been in a desert with my depression even the year prior. Yeah. And, but it's this gut check moment of like, do I really believe the gospel though, that my worth is found in, in Jesus alone? Yeah. And uh, I remember, you know, that phrase, you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Huh. I remember clinging to that. And I remember reading the book, uh, Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. And mm-hmm. there's this phrase that says, being broken and empty handed frightens the best of men, but it's a sure sign that God is with them. Mm. And I felt like God was saying to me, Drew, would you die to the dream of New York and follow me wherever my presence takes you? Wow. And I remember writing that in my journal. And like, you got to understand up to that point, like I felt like New York was it. Like there'd been prophetic dreams. There'd been yeah. all this favor in your life. It was like the death, everything that I had built my entire kind of career quote career for my like i'd been building this resume for this new york thing and i felt like god was saying to me drew i want you to die to your dreams and i want you to follow wherever my presence goes and so during that time as i'm wrestling through faith i'm like if i were to if i were to ever start a church what would it look like you know because i realized as much as i love big mega churches i actually love smaller churches and neighborhood churches yeah so i thought what if we were to start this church and if it grew to a certain size, we would just start other churches, but we were networked together as a family. Right. Thinking like, yeah, I, I think that's what I would love to do. And then as I'm dreaming about this, we find out in Korea that Tina is pregnant. Wow. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, like I need a job. I, I can't, I can't plant a church. I need a job. Right. And uh, this church, at, like this church in the Bay Area ends up contacting me through this search firm. And they asked me if someone had recommended me for this position out in the Bay Area of a mega church out there. Yeah, And it's a church my wife used to go to when she lived out in San Francisco. And my brother-in-law used to go there. And it's a church that I knew a lot about, super diverse, worked with the urban poor. And, uh, you know, I went to college there. So it was like, oh my goodness, like, I can't believe God is answering this prayer. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. I was like, forget about planning a church. I'm just going to go all in with, you know, this church. Fast forward, I become a finalist for this position. And now we're in October and I start contacting friends in the Bay area. Hey, we're moving to the Bay area. Do you know any housing? Do you know any doctors for, I'm like so sure that this is going to happen. And then October, um, October 10th, um, actually, yeah, you and I were getting together. (laughs) We, we were having lunch on your roof deck and you got the call. I know, man. So, so dude, so that, so that morning I was reading Psalm 33. And it says in Psalm 33, 
A king is not saved by the size of his army. Oh. A war horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Wow. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Wow. So that so that morning I was like, I was journaling after pondering that verse. And I was like, oh my goodness, the same reasons why I want to go to the Bay Area are the same reasons why I left New Life. Yeah. It's prestige and financial security. It's the size of an army. And I remember writing in my journal, God. Help me to give my life to something where I hope in your unfailing love. And then I wrote, I think you might be calling us to start a church in New York. Mm. And then we had lunch. <laughs> and you didn't know that call was coming that day. No, right? no, no idea. And so when I got that, well, we're having lunch. Do you remember what? I mean, I don't remember what I said. You walked away, you got the phone call and you had told me like, oh, I'm like, what are you going to do next? And you had told me, oh, I got, you know, this Bay Area church. It's this great church. You're selling me on it and this and that. And you're like, or, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about planning in New York. And then you, you got a phone call. You're like, oh, hey, I got to take this. So you went, you walked away, you took the phone call and you came back and you looked at me and you said, I guess I'm planning a church in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember saying that, but yeah. Wow. So when you, when you think about the church that you're in now, mm -hmm. Um, and, and you think back on your life and all of the, maybe at the time, seemingly insignificant decisions, but somehow had swung you, uh, to be here in this place with this type of church, with these values, what, what are some of the decisions that stand out? Oh yeah. I mean, for sure. A big one is coming to New York. Right. Like that was a huge one. Cause it didn't make sense. Cause the church that we'd helped start, it had grown quite a bit. They were going to pay for seminary. Like. Yeah, it, it just, it did not make sense for me to come to New York and raise money to be here. Yeah. And it's not like New Life was some like super like famous church or anything. Not yet. Yeah, not yet. It was, it was, but it, there was certainly something about the presence of God at this church, mm. you know, and there was something about New York that was compelling me and calling me. And so, um, so that was a big thing. Um, so I think coming to New York was a huge, huge decision. And I think number two, I would say is leaving new life. <laughs> right. So one is coming to New York and new life. The second is leaving new life, which was a huge decision. And I certainly would not be where I am without that. And number three, I think is, I, I guess you could say staying at new life. So coming to new life, staying at new life, leaving new life yeah. in a weird way. Yeah. That those three things are huge. Because staying at New Life, like the cultural download that I got from New Life has changed my life forever. Mm, yeah. And there is no way I would be where I am without New Life. There's no way, I don't think I'd be, gosh, I think I would have burnt out, done something super stupid without emotionally healthy spirituality, without, without a commitment to contemplative practice and emotional health. Yeah. And I think staying at New Life and having so much, like it's, it's changed my life. And I would, there's no way I would be where I am um, without that. At the same time, there's no way I'd be where I'm at if I had stayed at New Life. Like I needed to leave. Yeah. I needed to leave. I think I, I've certainly found my sweet spot where I am. It's interesting when you think about like the seasons of our life, the right decision, the wise decision for you was to come to New Life. Another was to stay and then another was to leave. All centered around the same church, same community, yeah. but taking you in vastly different directions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you constantly made a choice or sometimes were forced out of a, a choice out of comfort, uh, forced into discomfort, you know, leaving the, the growing church in, in California and moving to a city 
where you're not being paid Um, or, you know, the San Francisco uh, Bay Area position, that would have been the safe choice for you and that being taken from you. And now you're planting. That's just seems to be a consistent theme in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I needed a season of humility and broken. Like I realized I needed to leave and go through that desert season to be ready to plant a church Yeah, because I, I needed it to not be about my ego. And I realized part of my depression was some of the way that I operated was about my ego. And I needed, like I realized it's been these different, these incredible seasons of difficulty and suffering that have been the most formative. So if you recall that first year when I was an intern at New Life, the season of having my faith be deconstructed and me learning some humility. Yeah. Like I needed that season and it was probably the most growth that I went through. And then the season after I left New Life, like I needed that season of desert because that de- desert season, it's what shaped me and what's informed this whole journey that I'm now on. So now, I mean, it like it makes... Now, looking back, it makes so much sense. Why am I so committed to planting churches and being empowering of other leaders? It's because I went through that desert season and really wanting some people to believe in me. Yeah. You know, why, why have I done my best? You know, obviously we can always do more, but why have I done my best to want to be as open-handed related to church planting and, you know, yeah. raising and empowering? Mm-hmm. And I realized it's because that's what I wanted and needed, you know, and I needed, right. and, I, and I realized like so much of ministry had to do with my ego and I'm in a constant wrestling with my own ego now of mm-hmm. like taking me back to that place where well being broken and empty-handed frightens the best of men but it's a sure sign that God is with them yeah. you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have and so I want to continually put myself in a place where there's deep trust in what God can do It's amazing to think of how the lessons we learn in the valley of our journey become the core truths as we pursue the mountaintops. I saw that in Drew's story, the way that God spoke to him in his dark seasons of depression and wandering are still what carry him through to this day. It certainly makes me pause and think that some of the ways that God may want to speak to me now may carry me through the next seasons of my life. Well, Drew can be heard preaching at Hope Midtown on Sundays at 10 and 11.30 a.m. And if you're looking for a church in New York City, you could check out one of the eight locations of the Hope Church family of churches. But if you'd like to hear from Drew 280 characters at a time, you can find him on Twitter at Drew Hyun. I'll put that link and the link to his church in the show notes. Thanks for listening to The Pursuit. This week, would you share your favorite episode of The Pursuit on Facebook and tell your friends what you liked about it? That would mean a lot. Thank you. And as we go, remember that you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the path. funny was I remember you introduced me one time dude and you said you said yeah when I first met Drew I thought man that church needs a lot of help <laughs> and then you said when I read emotionally spirituality you thought man Drew needed a lot of help <laughs> yeah. and right on both counts yeah exactly man exactly <laughs>